Good morning, church. My name is Ellie. Our reading today comes from Galatians 5, 1 through 15. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would have been justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is God's word for us today. Again, good morning. And if you would, bow your heads with me and pray as we look to God's word. Let's ask for his help. God, in this passage, there is just such an incredible, on one hand, weight. We see it, a yoke even. And yet there is also in this same passage, incredible freedom and grace, which is the point of it, God. And so we pray for your help in in really discerning the weight and also clinging to the freedom you've given us in Christ. Give us the clarity to do that well, and give us, God, the strength and the conviction to stand firm in our freedom today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want you to picture a slave in the ancient world being sold at market with a yoke around his neck. A a yoke is basically a big wooden brace sort of meant to lock your arms often in place to your neck so you can't go anywhere. That brace is a powerful picture, an an illustration of this man's earthly condition. He is not free at all. And then I want you to picture a kind, gentle man who comes along and pays the full price to redeem this man out of his slavery. But then, rather than keeping him as a slave, he unshackles his yoke and he says to the man, you're my son today. I'm adopting you. Everything I have will be yours, just as if you were my flesh and blood. You will inherit it all. Not because you deserve it or because of anything you've done. I'm offering this to you. I'm making you my son as a free gift. And then I want you to picture this slave, former slave, standing there now free. 
looking back down at the ground at that yoke that was once around his neck. What in the world would compel this man in this circumstance to pick up that yoke and subject himself again to slavery? After all that this kind and gentle man had done for him, after all that he's been blessed with, all that he's gained, and when you say it that way, anyone can see, I think it would be a terrible idea for this man to submit himself again to a yoke of slavery. Uh, Because if he did, not only would he be a slave again, he would also be walking away from a whole new kind of life in a whole new family. He would be walking away from an inheritance that he could never gain on his own. Most importantly, he would be walking away. He would be turning from this new loving father. Way back in chapter one, Paul began this letter by warning the Galatians that they had turned from God the Father and they had embraced a false gospel. And since then, we found out that they did this because a group of troublemaking missionaries had convinced them that the nation of Israel, the earthly nation of Israel, was really God's true family. And therefore, as Gentiles, not Jews, their faith in Christ was not enough. It was not sufficient to get them in the family. They actually had to be circumcised and they had to obey the Old Testament law. And the Galatians, the problem was, were going along with this. So for the past five weeks, we have seen that Paul has been untangling all this confusion about God's true spiritual family. He's been doing that by teaching us from the Old Testament that God has always been using the earthly nation of Israel to raise up a whole different kind of spiritual family. And you don't join this family by just being born into it. You don't join it by just doing the right things in your bodily flesh, like being circumcised. And it's not tied to one nation at all. Everyone of every nation can join this family by repenting of their sins, by trusting in Christ alone, by being baptized into these local churches in which we live together as if we are members of his body, as if Christ is living in us and through us. And as members of this heavenly family, we have all been set free from our slavery to sin. We have been included in Jesus' son's status. His father has unshackled our spiritual yoke, and he's welcomed us into this new spiritual family. And now, it's as if we are standing there in that market, newly free, Looking back at that yoke on the ground, will we walk over to it, pick it back up, put it back on? Will we submit again to a yoke of slavery? With this in mind, in our passage today, it's as if Paul is pleading with us as we stand there pondering this decision. And he says right away, it is for freedom in verse one, that Christ has set us free. In other words, Jesus did not do all of this. He did not accomplish all of this so that we can go back to our same spiritual slavery. He set us free so that we can enjoy and live in the freedom of his father's grace. The father has accepted us. Our sins are gone. 
He has unshackled our yoke. He's redeemed us from slavery. He's given us an inheritance that he has, of all things, all creation. Stand firm, therefore, Paul says to us as we sit there pondering this decision. Stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You see, Paul is is pleading with the Galatians in this passage. He's saying, don't pick up the yoke. Don't turn from your heavenly father. He's saying very clearly, let's stand firm in the freedom of our father's grace. This is the claim of our passage. This is what God, I'm convinced, wants to, to call us to today, to stand firm in the freedom of his grace. After all of this teaching Paul's done from the Old Testament, about the church as God's new heavenly family, in verse two, he says, look. (laughs) And then he spends the rest of this passage showing us what it means to stand firm in the grace of our heavenly father and how it actually works. And so that's what we're gonna see today. How do we stand firm in the grace of our heavenly father? We're gonna see three ways. The first way is this. Number one, we stand firm by rejecting ministry practices that lead us to rely on the flesh by rejecting them. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now remember, uh, circumcision was a very specific thing uh, that I trust you know what it is that these churches were doing to men's bodies Based on the practice of the Old Testament, they were treating it as if it was the rite of passage into God's new heavenly family. And I want you to notice the solution to this controversy in Paul's mind is not just to sort out their doctrine of salvation. It's not just that they start thinking rightly about justification by faith alone, as important as that is, we've seen throughout the entire letter, they also have to actually reject circumcision. The two cannot coexist in these churches. And here we see why this is so important. It's because if they do accept circumcision in this way, Paul says, Christ will be of no advantage to them. In other words, if they just assume, hey, we're fine, we can kind of approach God on our own and and be made right with him by just doing this ritual in our flesh, well, then they will have no need for Christ and for his flesh, and that's the whole point of this family. And here's what Paul says to those who do rely on their flesh in this way. He says, I testify to you again, to every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, if we sort of go out on our own, rely on our flesh in this way, if we try and go about this apart from faith in Christ, we're on our own. We're on our own. He will be of no advantage to us. What he's accomplished on the cross will not apply to us. Paul even says here, you are severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And this is, this is so important. There is no way to stand firm in God's grace without relying entirely on God's son. It's not possible. It can't be done. Uh, grace is not just some sort of mysterious concept that, and God does not give it to us in some unknowable, mysterious way. No, grace is a man. 
Grace is a resurrected, eternal man, and we get it by relying on him. If we rely on ourselves, then we don't have it, and we are severed from him. This is why we can't put up with ministry practice. It's not about being nitpicky about doing church at all. That help us rely on our flesh, we can't do it because there's far too much at stake spiritually. And next, Paul describes how our church's ministry practices should work. In verse 5, he says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. I want to point out, I think there are three characteristics here of healthy, gospel-centered worship, religion even, uh, ministry practices. First, healthy ministry practices are spiritual. They're not just earthly. Uh, Which is to say... Uh, Our ministry here as a church should never just be about the things we do in the visible world. It has to be about what God is doing in us in an invisible spiritual way that that transcends this world. For example, next, uh, the goal of these ministry practices is, is faith. Paul says, through the Spirit, by faith. And so healthy ministry practices are designed to get our eyes off of ourselves and the things we do in the flesh. They're designed to get our eyes onto Christ and his finished work for us on the cross. In other words, they're not about our performance at all. They're about us relying on his performance as we rely on Christ all the more in our everyday lives. God's grace moves deeper and deeper into our lives in a spiritual way until we attain to the fullness of Christ. This is the goal of our church, every church and its ministry. And finally, healthy ministry practices always involve eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. In other words, we should never go about church as if we already have righteousness in and of ourselves, as if there's really no need for us to wait or hope for it. Healthy ministry practices make it crystal clear. Our righteousness is only found in Christ, and we will only have this righteousness, at least in its fullness, when he returns, when we are fully united with him. And therefore, this also means that our ministry practices should always be forward-looking. They should be eternal in their focus and their scope. In other words, our ministry is not first and foremost about our lives in this present evil age at all. It's about being crucified in our flesh, trusting in Christ, being delivered from this present evil age. We need to be looking together, longing together for the hope of Christ's return, for the hope of resurrection, resurrected life, for the hope of the new heavens, the new earth, all of that. So Paul sums up his point here about these ministry practices in this way. He says, for in Christ Jesus, that is, in his body, in the church, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Doesn't count at all. Here's what does. It's only faith working through love. So this is what good ministry practices look like in the church. First, they're spiritual. They're not just earthly. Uh, The goal of them is faith, not just a better performance. 
They are ultimately about the life to come and longing together for it, not just our bodily lives here and now. And the goal, the result of this kind of ministry, the thing that our faith will produce in us when it's working is love. This kind of ministry binds us together in loving, healthy, spiritual families like ours, also known as local churches. But I want you to see, if we neglect this way of doing ministry, if we replace it with flesh-focused ministry, it gets our eyes on us, that's, that's not spiritual, that's not faith-filled, that's not future-focused, there are huge, huge consequences to this. To the tune of apparently being severed from Christ. To the tune of falling away from God's grace. And so here's, here's the takeaway for us today is that our spiritual freedom can be at stake in the way we do church. In other words, there is a way in which of trying to do religion and church that can actually undercut our spiritual freedom, right? For example, how do we welcome people into our church? Uh, what does that mean when we do this? Uh, what do we ask them to do to become a part of the church? Do our practices in general help us to rely on Christ alone? Or do they point people away from Christ and encourage them to rely on themselves? Even just for us personally, are we going about life and ministry as a member of the church in a truly spiritual, in a truly faith-filled, in a truly future-focused way? Are these our aims in, this, in our church? In many ways, the way we answer these questions will have a real impact on whether or not we stand firm in the grace of God or if we submit ourselves again to a yoke of slavery. Now, throughout this series, some of you have asked some really, really great questions even about our practices as a church. Some of our are sort of new or different for you in some ways. For example, are we adding to the gospel by requiring people to be baptized in order to join our church? It's a great question. Uh, or are we adding to the gospel by having people go through a membership class and actually committing to a church covenant, even signing a book with us? Are these things adding to the gospel? Or even just by insisting that joining a specific local church is expected of every Christian? These are great questions. I love that we're processing this. I hope you can see that it really matters. This is really important. Just a few observations here. First, Paul is writing this letter to multiple distinct churches. You look at the very first chapter uh, in the intro, this is addressed to the churches in Galatia. There's more than one, and he knew which ones they were. So he's not acting like this is just one big thing that we can kind of float in and out of as we please. And then in chapter three, he's even said, as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. And so not only is he assuming that every member of these churches was baptized, uh, he's also suggesting that those who were not baptized had not yet put on Christ with the rest of the members of these churches. So these are distinct churches with a specific number of baptized members. In fact, the whole letter, frankly, is about what it means to join one of these churches and how that should work and the fact that circumcision is not it, right? That's one of the primary reasons he's writing it. And while baptism is something we do with our flesh, which is true, 
is not about relying on our flesh. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's about being crucified in our flesh with Christ. It's about being raised with him, professing our faith in Christ. It's about joining his family. We're baptized into the body. And so when it comes to our our church covenant, for example, here's the first line of that covenant. Here's how it begins. It says, trusting that we have been brought by God's grace to repent, trust, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And having been baptized as a profession of our faith in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then everything else flows from there. This is why we affirm this covenant. These are not just the list of commands that we are expecting everyone to obey according to their flesh. That's not the point of this at all. It's about defining how to stand firm together in God's grace. This is the heart behind it. Uh, It's also important to note that everything we do commit to in our covenant is commanded of all Christians in Scripture. Uh, The covenant even has references that you can look to to find how and why that is. So we are not asking anyone to go beyond what God has commanded them already. In fact, the truth is you can't really obey a number of these biblical commands unless you are part of a church. Like the command, for instance, to gather regularly for worship. Uh, The command to to sit under and and, and be led by us particular leaders. You can't do it. So we're just asking folks here to stand up. We're asking them to profess their faith in Christ and to commit to actually doing these things with us. And if you're really committed to following Christ with us, you're eager to be counted as a member of the church, and you'd really just rather not sign a book, that's fine. Don't worry about it. The book isn't important. I just thought it was kind of cool. All these practices are are very intentional and they are designed, really the heart behind them is grace to help us to stand firm in grace, to point us over and over again to Christ. I want you to see here, they really do matter because the way we go about doing church together, it can either help us to stand firm in the grace of God or it can help us submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so we can't put up here with, with flesh-focused ministry practices, just do what seems good, feels good. We have to reject those. And next, we also have to stand firm by rejecting leaders and the views they use to justify those practices. That's what Paul does next. Now, as I read some of this next part, um, just listen along for me for two things. Listen for leaders. We're looking for leaders and we're looking for their views, okay? Look at verse seven with me. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Which leader? This persuasion, he says, is not from him who calls you. So we have leaders, we have views or persuasions. And then verse 10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So we have a view and again, we have leaders. So the focus is on the leaders who were hindering these churches and the views they used to do it. But to understand why it worked this way, why this is so important, it really helps to understand why it was that the Galatians were tempted to embrace these leaders. Why were they tempted to embrace these views? This is actually really important to understanding the whole letter. The reason was a fear of persecution. 
And we saw this last week, right? This sons of the flesh will persecute the sons of the free child, right? Uh, these missionaries were threatening to persecute the members of these churches if they didn't get circumcised and obey the law. It's a tremendous pressure. And Paul says here, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, we'll just pause right there. If there's one thing clear in Galatians, it's that Paul does not preach circumcision, okay? So what he's, what he's saying here is, it seems as if someone is probably trying to pass this off as, oh, Paul would be fine with this. He's on board with this. Someone at some point was. And what he's saying is, if that were true, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, he says, the offense of the cross has been removed. In other words, there is a connection between these views and the persecution of these leaders. They're connected. If you preach that circumcision is not required, that faith is sufficient to justify you of sins and get you in this family, well, then those who think it's not are going to persecute you like they were persecuting me, Paul's saying. But listen, if you want to avoid being persecuted in this way, the solution is very simple. Preach circumcision. Become citizens of Israel. Obey the law. Rely on your flesh. Or in Paul's other words, turn from God and embrace a false gospel. But what I want us to do, I want us to get in the heads of these Galatians. It's important for us to identify with them. There was tremendous pressure here to recognize the institutional legitimacy even of Israel. Tremendous pressure. If these churches could kind of fly under the radar or hitch their wagon to the nation of Israel as if they're just sort of one sect of Judaism, they could benefit from this in all kinds of ways, even legal ways. But if not, then they would be seen as incredibly offensive to the nation of Israel and it would open them up to all kinds of persecution. And here's the point. The gospel will always be offensive to anyone who insists they keep relying on their flesh. It will always be offensive to them. And therefore, to truly preach it, we will have to risk losing credibility in the eyes of this world. We, we may even have to risk offending people who will turn around and even try to harm us. But I want you to see there is something very necessary about this offensiveness. It's actually part of the power of the gospel because it forces us and those who hear the gospel to face the reality of their slavery to sin. And unless they do that, as Paul says, that Christ will be of no advantage to them. They won't need him to be set free. They don't think they need to be set free. But for this reason, there is always a temptation to redefine the gospel and to redefine the church in a way that helps people avoid facing their slavery to sin in this way. In a way that, as Paul says, removes the offense of the cross. But that kind of gospel first is, is not just, it's just not the gospel of God, and it also has no power to save. And so we have to reject even professing Christian leaders and their views when they do this. And boy, does Paul ever do that in this passage. <laughs> oh, in fact, he says something pretty wild here. I've been wondering how this is going to go. Um, <laughs> he says, I wish those who unsettle you, he's talking about these missionaries, would emasculate themselves. 
Okay, so just to clarify, uh, this controversy revolved around circumcision, which I trust you know is the act of removing the foreskin from a male's penis. Again, just trying to be as clear as possible. And for a man to emasculate himself would mean, for example, to remove his entire penis. That is in your Bible. Uh, Paul is saying here, uh, if these missionaries think circumcision is so important, I wish they'd go a little further. I wish they wouldn't stop at the foreskin. I wish they'd cut off the whole thing. God inspired Paul to write this. That's, that, that will break some of your categories. But I, I realize this may just, honestly, this, I've talked even with some of you about this. That may just seem mean to you. Paul's being mean. That may seem really harsh and scathing. And, and to be honest, I, I don't know there's any way around it. It, it is. <laughs> it is really harsh. My goodness. Uh, I don't think we have to see this as our model, or certainly the only model, for how we disagree with the leaders we need to reject. Uh, but... And I mean this, I do think we have to appreciate why this kind of intensity is absolutely called for in this case. Even if it may not be our style per se, that's fine. We have to remember what's at stake here. We are not just talking about, you know, one way of doing church versus uh, another way of doing church. No. We are talking about standing firm in the grace of our Father or falling away from it. We are talking about whether or not real people's sins will be forgiven for all of eternity. We are talking about whether or not these folks are true members of Christ's heavenly body or if they are severed, that is cut off like a foreskin from his body. So the takeaway is not Sure, we need to run around and go find a bunch of troubling pastors and tell them to do this. But the takeaway is this. It's that some professing Christian leaders and their views must be rejected. They must. If we are to stand firm in the grace of our Father. Now here I want to talk about a specific church in our city. Uh, I'm not going to name this church, uh, thought about it, prayed about it, uh, mostly because this is going to be on the internet and I am not preaching to the internet right now. <laughs> I'm not preaching to anyone else's church, preaching to you. Uh, I want to be really wise about this. Please pray I would. Uh, I want to ask you to be wise even about what I'm saying right now. But I will say this church has a connection with one of the largest, most influential churches in our region. And maybe uh, many of you, I'm sure, have heard of this church. You may even have friends who attend it. Recently, the pastor of this church announced that he is now affirming of LGBTQ sexuality. Uh, that homosexuality, transgenderism, for example, are not sinful. And therefore, those who openly practice them are, just, are welcome to join their church, no questions asked. Now, I want to be really, really clear here. Uh, I expect people in our church, I expect it, 
that they will wrestle with their sexuality. That is, is not the problem. Uh, the question is, will we treat it as sin when they do? And that's what's said. There's a lot at stake here. So in a podcast, this pastor and a co-host explained why they have adopted this ministry practice and view. And in this podcast, they discuss how the authors of Scripture can just be wrong about things and how we need other experts to correct these views that they put in the writings of Scripture. So, that, By the way, there's a lot more going on here than just a social issue. Uh, here, here's a quote from his pastor on his podcast. He says, The church in America is growing in irrelevance by leaps and bounds. And I would say a third of my daughter's friends have come out as bi, as pan, as queer, as gay. And I can tell you 100% my daughter will not take the baton of a church that is not affirming. It won't happen. And she, he continues, is one of many, many, many young people. So I just want to ask, he says, is this a hill we want to die on? The gospel, listen carefully, the gospel is too important to become irrelevant because we tied our wagons to this one issue. I think we're going to get left behind, he says, if we don't have these conversations. Now, there is a lot to untangle here. I cannot address every detail. Again, I want to be wise. So I want to get right to the heart of this issue. Uh, how does this leader and his view relate to what Paul is saying here about circumcision and relying on our flesh rather than Christ? Here's how. The Galatians were adding earthly requirements for people to be justified of their sin and join God's heavenly family. This church in our community today is subtracting one of the only heavenly requirements, and that is namely repentance from sin. Frankly, it's the need to crucify our lives in the flesh, as Paul said, rather than simply affirming our lives in the flesh. They are saying, and I'm not trying to mischaracterize them, I'm confident I'm not, this is not sin. You do not need to repent of it to be part of God's heavenly family, even if the Bible says you do. Even though Christians have agreed on this for 2,000 years of church history, the effect is to say you can define yourself even. You, you can define your life in the flesh according to these sexual desires and still be a heavenly son. Now, I want you to notice the effect of this view is exactly the same as what we see here in Galatians. First, the offense of the cross is being removed. The truth of the gospel is being distorted. The heavenly nature of God's family is being ignored. His right to define his family that he's creating and our complete inability to change it. Rejection and persecution are being avoided. Earthly credibility is being sought after. So please hear me. If we receive any kind, sincere person, 
into God's family, of which I trust there are many in the LGBTQ community. If we receive any kind, sincere person into his family, whether or not they've repented of their sin or relied on Christ and even set aside their earthly flesh identities in order to become one with us by faith, if we let all that go, Christ will be of no advantage to us. Our faith our practice of church will count for nothing. We may talk about Jesus a lot. We may even really like him. We may mention some of his teachings, but we certainly will not need his resurrected flesh because, frankly, we're not interested in being rescued from ours. So I want to be really clear about this today. The gospel is at stake in this debate over gender and sexuality. It absolutely is. This entire story is about a father sending his son so that we could be born again into a family, which is called the bride of Christ with this heavenly Jerusalem as our mother. The whole story begins with God creating a man and then a woman for that man and telling them to fill the earth with children and families. Gender, marriage, and sexuality are not peripheral to the content of the gospel. Marriage between a husband and wife, Paul tells us, is a profound picture of Christ and his church. And if we lose sight of this, or if we redefine it, whatever the tremendous pressures of the world may be, the foundation of our entire faith will collapse. Now, I want, I really want you to hear this part uh, because this is not about being right. It's not just about being right. It's not even just about interpreting ancient texts. This is not just about winning a culture war or proving how holy we are. This is certainly not about marginalizing those who are drawn to this particular kind of sexual sin. As hard as it may be to convince the world of these things, it's not. This is about keeping the gospel clear so they can be set free from all of their sins with us. This is about standing firm in the grace that we received when we were set free from our slavery. Listen, if we get this wrong, we will be helping people submit to a yoke of spiritual slavery. We will not be showing them God's grace and love in this. We will be keeping them from God's grace in his love. I'm not trying to fan the flames of, of cancel culture or whatever, okay? Um, please do not say anything about this online even. Twitter, no, stop, please. Uh, there is an underbelly to this, I think, in the church today as well. I think the reality is, the truth is, these days it is as if people stop reading our passage here. It's as if they think, well, yeah, this, that's it. This is all we have to do to stand firm. This is what it means to stand firm. We just got to reject all these practices, all these people, all these views. That's not it. There is one more way that we need to stand firm. And that is, thirdly, by committing to love the brothers we are standing firm with. And again, if you're not here with us, again, there is no longer male, female. We've all crucified our flesh. We've been made one in Christ. It's as if we're him. So when I say brothers, that's why we're all brothers. We're part of Christ, okay? 
But next, Paul warns us of a potential danger here in almost manipulating this freedom that we have. And first he says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. And then he says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, there's a way of kind of hiding behind God's grace in order to justify living in our flesh somehow, right? He doesn't say what that looks like, but we can tell clearly what it looks like based on what he says next. He says, but, in other words, instead of using your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, through love, he says, we should serve one another. Now that's really interesting, isn't it? There is a way of hiding behind God's grace in order to justify not loving and serving the members of the body so, so that we can keep living in our flesh rather than living in Christ as his body. Kind of looks like, hey, listen, don't tell me what to believe. Uh, don't tell me what to do. You, you can't do that. that that's, that's law. That's law. I'm free. I have God's grace. I'm a son of the promise. No. <laughs> no. Paul's point here is that God does not set us free from our slavery so that we can live guilt-free on our own. Uh, he doesn't set us free from our slavery so that all of us have this ultimate Jesus juke that could stop anyone from keeping us accountable at any particular point in life. No, he sets us free so that we can live together in love as, as members of his son. And in fact, he even says, this is how we actually obey the law now as Christians. It's really interesting. Uh, it's not just by reading the Old Testament and trying to do it on our own. It's by living together in love, by faith in Christ, as if he's living through us. This is how we obey the law, as if Christ is obeying the law. This is the point of the Old Testament. If we do that, by the power of the Spirit, the whole law is fulfilled. And that this is part of how we stand firm in God's grace. We do it together, and we do it in love. And for that reason, next, Paul warns the Galatians about the dangers of doing the opposite. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Uh, this is how the life of any church will go if we embrace flesh-focused ministry practices and welcome false brothers and, and adopt their unbiblical views. The result will be all kinds of moral chaos, sin, conflict, turmoil. And so here's our takeaway today. We will never stand firm on our own. We will never stand firm on our own. Imagine the rest of your Christian life going incredibly well. I pray it does for all of you. Uh, until someday you die. You meet Jesus face to face. Just imagine it's the dream, the dream scenario. The dream ending. But imagine all the hardships and trials that will come along the way. Uh, imagine all the spiritual growth that you hope to see between now and then. But imagine you just nail it all. Imagine you walk through all of it with grace, with poise, with, with unshakable faith in Christ. Again, it's, it's an exaggeration. It's never going to go that way, right? Point is, what would it take, though, to live a healthy, vibrant Christian life for the rest of your life? I want you to imagine that. Now I want you to picture the other members of our church many of whom are here with you in the room today. And here's what I want you to see from our passage today. These people are essential to that outcome. They are. Committing to them, loving them, 
worshiping with them, serving them, pressing on with them in faith when things get hard. Church, this is all part of what it means to stand firm in the grace of our Father. It's intimidating to face all these challenges, to navigate these spiritual dangers. If we really want to do that, we need to immerse ourselves in these real spiritual relationships where we see each other's sins, where we point one another to Christ, where we build each other up in faith, where we return time and time again to the grace of Christ. And then when it's done, we rinse, we repeat, we keep loving, we keep serving. As we've seen the heavenly significance of real churches here throughout Galatians, some of you have asked another really great question. Uh, Isn't the church just sort of more universal than this? I, I feel like my Christian friends from college, for instance, they are kind of my local church. And certainly I want to say that the church is far bigger than any one church. Anyone who's truly a Christian is part of that. And absolutely, there are value in all kinds of Christian relationships. But there is a unique heavenly significance to walking with a specific group of Christians who participate together in a church's ministry practices, who sit under the teaching of that church's leaders, and who live together in love week in and week out, according to Scripture. If we try to redefine the gospel or the church in a way that makes this optional, I'm concerned we may be using our freedom as an opportunity even for the flesh. We don't just need some good Christian friends. Uh, We we don't just need a a well-trained Christian therapist. Uh, We don't just need good Christian content. As incredibly helpful as, as all of these things may be, we need to be knit together in love with real specific people as the body of Christ. Because this is the only body we will ever stand firm in. We'll never do it on our own. We'll never do it according to the flesh. And so let's go back, if you would, to this scene with the slave who was set free. They're looking at his yoke. Okay, before we wondered, well, why in the world would he ever want to go back to slavery? Now I think in light of the passage, we see and have a better sense of why. It's because there are all kinds of pressures, pressures that are tempting us to redefine slavery, to set ourselves free, or to consider that ourselves that we already are free. Whatever will keep us from the Father's grace. In many ways, it's like everyone in this market is sort of yelling at us. Oh, what do you think you're being set free for? Do you think you're better than me? You don't think I deserve to be set free? Do you think I deserve to be enslaved? You think I have to repent and trust in this guy too? You think you deserve this kind of inheritance that you got that I don't? It's tense in that market. The pressures can mount. Temptations, tensions can rise. may even seem like, man, this is not going to end well. And all we have to do, all we have to do is just reach out, grab that yoke, and submit to slavery again, and all of this persecution will go away. No one will trouble us anymore. But we'll also lose our freedom. We'll be turning from the Father. We'll be severed from his Son. So church, what we need is to ignore the many voices in this market shouting out at us. What we need is to look straight ahead into the eyes of our Father who's just set us free. We need to hear his voice. You are my 
child by faith. That's it. We need to look to our left and to our right, to our brothers and sisters. We need to stand firm in the grace of our Father with them, never submitting to a yoke of slavery ever again, for we were called to freedom, brothers. Let's stand firm in our freedom together.